0: and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue, a comics journal podcast. I'm Greg Hunter, recording from the Midwestern Comics Hub of Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this podcast, we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist with each installment. Dean Haspiel is our guest this time. You may know Dean from any number of projects, including his Billy Dogma comics, his autobiographical work Beef with Tomato, his collaboration with Jonathan Ames, the alcoholic, or his collaborations with Harvey P. Carr, including their standalone graphic novel, The Quitter. Dean's a multi-time Eisner nominee, someone who cut his teeth as an assistant to Howard Chaykin, Walt Simonson, and others, and a comics lifer who nonetheless won an Emmy for his contribution to *Board to Death. Currently, he's writing, drawing, and serializing The Red Hook, a superhero riff of his own creation, at webtoons.com. Check out the posting of this episode for the link. I met with Dean this past May at Wizard World of Minneapolis, and we recorded this one on the convention floor, right in the eye of the hurricane. A hurricane made of Deadpools. If you're hearing this podcast in your web browser via TCJ.com, and you'd like to download the other episodes on iTunes, maybe you tried and it even seemed like you couldn't, but you can. Each installment of Comic Book Decalogue is available in the iTunes feed of our sister podcast, Mike Dawson's TCJ Talkies. And, hey, come back next month when our guest will be Anna Bongiovanni. And right now, please enjoy 10 Questions with Dean Haspiel.
1: All
2: right, we are recording uh, in Wizard World, Minneapolis, 2016. We're here with Dean. Question number one is, what's the last comic you finished reading?
1: Oh gosh Um For some reason This pops up in my head I read a lot of comics But the one that stood out For me recently Is The Violent From Image Comics Have you been reading that at all? No, no Who Is the creative team behind that? Oh god You know I wish I could remember Their names right now And I actually went And I think I friended The artist on Instagram But there's Something really Beautiful about This comic It It's It's basically a crime comic Uh You know, it's it's about a a couple of losers that get into a situation like a lot of those stories are. But there was something about the way it's written and drawn and paced made me care for the characters by the end of issue one, which is important to do, you know, because then that's how you get to the next issue and so on and so forth. But there was just something subtle, and yet, I don't know, there was a certain nuance to the way it's being... uh, delivered that I really liked a lot and it maintains it as a comic book it's not like an obvious you know screenplay that got converted Uh or at least if it is they're pulling it off as a comic you know Uh, so the violent is something that I'm really enjoying a lot lately and you know I, I, I probably read one DC comic and that's Batman and otherwise, I'll probably pick up about six or seven different Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, Marvel was, it was like Marvel, Yankees, Coke. Uh-huh. Other people would be like, DC Comics, Mets, Pepsi. You know? So, but I mean, I love them all. You know, I mean, I, I like Archie Comics. I, I, I love a lot of independent comics. Image Comics is knocking on the park these days. Um, and, you know, I've worked for a lot of those different companies, but... Uh, If there's a standout just, like, recently that pops in my head, it's The Violent. Uh And I think there are, like, three issues, maybe four issues in right now. Now, before we started recording, you
2: mentioned being a New York guy, growing up and reading Marvel books. What would you say the breakdown was between the characters drawing you in and having a a backdrop to those?
0: We lost a small amount of audio here in which Dean emphasized the appeal of Jack Kirby in
2: particular all right kirby is arguably at a point now where he's gotten the critical recognition his work deserved all along our second question question number two is what cartoonist doesn't get enough
1: praise jack kirby (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) I mean just because you mentioned that. Um I mean, does he get enough praise like in the comics industry? I hope so. And you know, I, I do think about this question a lot because uh there's a lot of things I consume and enjoy that I don't know who made. And if I wanted to go to Wikipedia or, you know, the source material and find out who created the stuff that I like. You know, hopefully it's accurate and it's out there. Uh but and it's nice to see, like, credits being given to the folks, it, it, let's say, with the movies. Mm-hmm. That I, I, Arguably, more people are checking out the movies of these characters these days. And, yeah, there's a like, nice little scroll. Or at the beginning, it says, created by. Yeah. And then, as we know, after 60, 50, 60, 75 years worth of these characters being developed, you know, for the franchise, other artists and writers come in and, and help, you know, with that creation. So they get credit, too. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you ask the normal person, name a comic creator, they would probably say, Stan Lee, maybe Frank Miller. Gosh, I don't know. At one point, it might have been Jeff Smith or somebody who's doing like a cartoon today. They might know the name of the, uh, you know, the, the the creator of the young adult material, they, uh-huh. you know, producer whatever's trendy and, and hot. And you sometimes know who that is because creators' names are attached now to these things. It's become important. But I would argue that most people don't know who Jack Kirby is. You know, the the normal consumer. I think that's true. In the general you know? public. Yeah, the general public. Is that important? I'd I'd like to think so, as a creator and an auteur myself, you know. Um, but then there are creations that you just make willy nilly. A lot of that, a lot of these creators just, you know, that was the week that they made up that character for that week. Right. They didn't have no idea that this was going to become something. And you know, I I do wonder if like young artists today are, are kind of being cajoled to think like, oh, let me create my magnum opus right off the bat at age nineteen. You know, mm-hmm. like. Not really. You have a ways to go, you know. There's, there's other, uh, you, you have to like, you go through a, a, your own hazing process of, of creativity, you know. Um, but yeah, Jagger but like in terms of new people, I mean, there's so many, so much great new talent happening. Uh, we've learned so much from our forefathers, you know, uh, how to, you know, in terms of comics, how to write and draw these things. I always make sure that whenever I do an interview uh, and someone asks me, you know, who, who do you think about or who, who helped you? I always name the names. Mm-hmm. You have to. You know, it's kind of like if you listen to White Stripes, let's say, and you're like, well, where who influenced them or where did they get their, you know, they will often say or a band will say, well, listen to these guys. Sure. And then you go back, and you go, oh, my God, this is amazing. You know, history is really important to me in terms of creativity and, and, and where our, our source material comes from.
2: You know, let me skip ahead one question, since we're talking along these lines. In your own biography, or at least um, your Wikipedia page, feel free to correct me oh, as boy. needed, there are some I, yeah. amazing names early on in your career. Chakin mm-hmm. Simonsons, Chenkovic. So, uh, one question we ask here is, what's the best advice you've heard about making comics?
1: Okay, well, I don't know if I've heard great advice Except a friend of mine, Chris Orr, once said, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Mm -hmm. And because I understand comics to be basically a shortcut art anyway in terms of just reducing and boiling down ideas into quick kind of, you know, uh, signature moments, you know. Uh, you know that allows a latitude for you to, you know, indulge a sequence if you wanted to, sure. or if it had a narrative purpose. But it, frankly, it's a shortcut art. You know, um, so I don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. In fact, as I get older, I've teased myself with the concept of trying to draw as fast as you read it. Uh huh. Which is, mm. I don't know. I mean, I look at like, a, 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 you know, again, like Jack Kirby as a kid. I didn't understand him, and then I understand him the more I, the, the older I get. But Gary Panther was another guy, like I didn't get, and like he draws really from the gut. I'd say, you know, and and I love that impulsive line, and that um, I'm trying to find my way there. Uh-huh. I was trapped by, uh, you know, pencils to inks to cut, you know, the whole assembly line of making comics. Now I want to do, I want to skip certain aspects and just get to the root of what the drawing is. But you have to earn that. But going back to uh, what I would advise in terms of starting out in comics, we have the internet, man. You know, like, you don't have to kill a tree <laughs> to, to prove to me that you, you're a cartoonist. And, and it's a great sketchpad, you know, in the sky mm-hmm. is the internet. And so... But use that, use that space, but commit to it. You know, a lot of people I feel like start off and they, they, you know, either because they think it's cool or because they want to at first, and then discover how hard it is. Yeah. But stick to it and 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 commit to a schedule, because people like to know that they can count on you. So if you say you're going to come out with a comic on a Wednesday, every Wednesday come out with a comic, by hook or by crook.
2: Let me move back to Kirby quickly uh, before we move on. You know, you mentioned coming of age during 80s Kirby, which is... Maybe his least accessible stuff. Sure. Rediscovering the early work. My personal favorite Kirby is, I think, his 70s return to Marvel. Because there's a combination Mm -hmm. of... Like
1: Devil Dinosaur, Machine Man.
2: The 70s Captain America.
1: 70s Cap with the mad bomb.
2: Yeah, there's a combination of, you know, wild energy. But also, you know, the craft accumulated over decades. So I'm wondering now...
1: And that's without Stan Lee, you know, mm -hmm. helping shape the stories with him. Because I do feel like if I had to pick my favorite... Jack Kirby comics is probably the 102 issues of Fantastic Four he did with Uh Stan Lee and Joe Sinnott and the other anchors he worked with and I also like OMAC a lot you know (laughs) and I have saved Commandy for later because I indulged Mm. so much Jack Kirby that I wanted to leave some stuff for later interesting Uh, and I also recently realized I had like his 10 issues of 2001 you know where I think it starts off as an adaptation and then moves on and actually I think that's where Machine Man originated from but um I'm sorry the question about oh, you were saying about you loved well, yeah, well, I mean you've answered already I
2: was curious that uh now as an adult and as a seasoned comic veteran right. what Kirby you
1: revisit most often I would say Fantastic Four and Omac mm-hmm. there's and and I love Double Dinosaur and I I love anything he touched you know but the the ideas in the other ones are still profound mm-hmm. All
2: right question number 3 What's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with?
1: Gone with the Wind. No, I'm kidding.
2: That's, that's the movie.
1: Uh, God, a, a widely... Can you give me an example of what you feel is... Because that's such a... a, a like, like You mean like Walking Dead? I connect with Walking Dead. I think that's a widely... Sure, I mean, that comic. would qualify. Yeah, I mean, that like these questions are
2: jumping off points in the no, sense No, I know, that, like, I know, and I'm trying like, to think... Like, or like
1: something that was very popular and everyone loved, and
2: I just was like, that wasn't yeah. my cup of... It's trying to, like, I suppose, also root out what a person's
1: idea of of widely loved well, is. Well, like I mean, you ask. I, my my brain just connected over to X Men, for instance, and I remember loving Chris Claremont, John Byrne X Men, and Paul Smith, John Rita Jr., Dave Cockrum, mm-hmm. and not to say that X Men sucks now, but I can't connect with X Men. Uh, there's so many storylines happening, so many jumping around in time and. I'm sure, like, I, what was it, Brian Michael Bendis was writing some of them recently? Yeah. And other... I just can't... Re- I, and I feel like the initial idea of what it was meant to be, which was kind of like maybe a thinly-veiled metaphor for, you know, gay rights and black rights and, you know, just dealing with underdogs, as it, as it were, I think really blurred and became not... That's not the comic anymore. And I still think we need a comic like that, you know, discuss what is diversity and, and getting those people to, to have those conversations. To me, and I'm not saying that that's exactly what was happening when Chris Claremont and John Byrne were doing it either. But and, and uh, people
2: say sometimes that Stan Lee got tired of writing origin stories. Oh, man, And I that know. was the I inception know, and of the mutant. actually
1: like, yeah, you're just born that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's still a, 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 a really interesting concept for a superhero team. Uh and I think the movies are doing okay with it, you know, boiling it down in terms of like taking the source material. But uh, nowadays, I don't know if I connect. I don't know if I connect with a lot of superhero comics. Maybe it's because I'm going to be 49 at the end of this month, mm-hmm. and I've read my my share of superhero comics. Even though right now I'm doing a superhero comic, I don't know. I, I really love a lot of the the concepts that are coming out from uh, uh, Image Comics. Uh, like I said, I probably read one DC comic. Um, Maybe I'm just getting too old. Maybe, I don't know. Well, let's take this as a chance to talk about
2: the Red Hook. Okay. Uh, before we started recording, you alluded to, you know, the gentrification of
1: Brooklyn. And I don't feel like I'm one of the gentrifiers because I'm a born and bred Manhattanite that just happened to move to Brooklyn 19 years ago. But yeah, I'm doing a comic called The Red Hook and and, and I created this character kind of as a challenge, as a, a palate cleanser when I went to this... Um, artist-writers retreat called Yaddo in 2012. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going there to write. But I wasn't there going there to write comics. I was going there to write a novel and finish a screenplay and that kind of stuff, and short stories, essays. And But because I 24-7 write and draw comics, I wanted to shrug off comics the first night by writing a short comic. And my challenge to myself was, all right, uh, let's say Jack Kirby and Alex Tove got together and gave birth to a new superhero. What would that be? Uh-huh. And I created this character called the Red Hook. And that was it. I did like a short scene. And, and I didn't give it a lot of background stuff. I just came up with this funky thing that was kind of like a, a red version of the fox. You know? And, and sure. Wildcat and Daredevil or something. So that was it. And I put it away. And then a few months later, I was at another residency the Atlantic Center for the Arts, where I was the master artist with a bunch of eight associate artists, and one of the projects was, oh, I'll try and draw this story. So then I designed in the character, the Red Hook, and actually the character at the time was called The Rascal, and then I decided to call him The Red Hook. Anyway, so then uh, my uh, former studio mate, the late Seth Kushner, who passed away last year uh, battling cancer. Uh he had come up with a character called the Brooklyn Knight, and we decided, you know what? My character takes place in Red Hook, yours is a Brooklyn Knight you know, in Park Slope, let's do a two-man anthology at some point. But I still felt like, does it matter that, you know, it's about two superheroes in New York? We have so many mm-hmm. of those. So it wasn't until recently, before Seth passed away, that I came up with this with, with the hook, forgive the pun, which was Uh, that Brooklyn is sentient, its heart's been broken by the indifference and apathy of the world, and physically and literally secedes from New York, ergo America, Mm -hmm. and becomes its own country. Because a lot of times I'm in Brooklyn, I I sometimes look around and I go, you know, I think Brooklyn could be its own country, it's big enough. (laughs) And I I started thinking, well, could sustain itself, so on and so forth. So I kind of came up with this idea, that, and I also am a big fan of John Carpenter. And you know, sure. Escape from New York is where Manhattan's quarantined to a prison. You know, I also and my own feelings about the fact that I had to move from Manhattan to Brooklyn because I couldn't afford Manhattan. Now I now Brooklyn, ironically, is more expensive than Manhattan. So it's hard to be an artist in a big city like that. You know. Anyway, that's kind of where the the concept came for the Red Hook, and now I've, I'm producing a 26 a uh, free weekly webcomic at linewebtoons.com
2: Question number four. We're going to revisit your youth one more time. You can send one question back to yourself at age 14. Uh, did I say question? You can send one comic <laughs> to yourself at age 14. You probably have plenty of questions already. What is that comic and why?
1: Well, I assume it's a... Well, one would assume it would be a comic being made... M- a modern comic, more recent. But it really was the older comics that changed my life. When I would, Whatever I was reading at the time, then you dig back in the old you know, comics boxes at the comic shop at Funny Business or West Side Comics or Forbidden Planet and Jim Hanley's Universe, which is now JHU Comics. That kind of, you know, those places. And digging through the older comics is what, you know, kind of like, I don't know, uh, locked me in, uh-huh. in a way. Uh, you take you take for granted anything that's coming out now, you know, but it's 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 something like God and I'm trying to think of a comic that I always look at and I'm just like, damn, I know a lot of people like Fantastic Four number fifty one this man, this monster, and the thing is probably my favorite Marvel comic character, so I do think about the thing you know it's like a monster, a monster romance, and I do like monster romances a lot. So maybe that might be the comic I send back. I was talking before about Omac. There's some fantastic ideas in Omac uh, issue 2 that still blows my mind.
2: Gosh, uh Well, let me ask you something. You mentioned comics as a shortcut form and I'm wondering if like if and when you read through, I don't know what you might call the masters of that, someone like Ernie Bushmiller mm-hmm. or some of those, uh, you know, newspaper cartoonists too, mm-hmm. were on on a deadline that had them putting out, you know, five strips a week, yeah. and who had to
1: really. I own think strips their... didn't impact me as much as comic books because it's a different landscape, There's different, you know, rules almost to what a strip can do, which is more talking heads uh-huh. than than silent moments or big moments or action or. I mean, a comic book does everything, you know. Whereas a strip, I I enjoyed reading strips as a kid. I mean, I remember reading Spider-Man. I remember reading Dandy. You know, Peanuts, of course. It's a comic called Herman by Jim Unger that was bizarre. The Far Side. I mean, I love all those, but those are gag strips. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the the thing you can learn from a gag strip is that maybe each page is kind of like a gag in a way. I mean, not, not necessarily for a joke. But it it, it imparts something and maybe leaves you on a cliffhanger to turn the page, you know? So that's a good way of employing uh, strip-style comics. But, yeah, those didn't, like... And I did do a a comic called Tommy Rocket for my local uh, college newspaper at SUNY Purchase. Uh, But I didn't stick with it, you know? Like, I like the latitude of... And I I think in terms of, like, 20, 22-page stories, Mm -hmm. uh, the lesser the page count, the harder the story to make.
2: How much do you think about the page as a unit of storytelling? Is there a certain effect you want the end of each page to have, for instance?
1: Well, like I mentioned before, like, there's these mini cliffhangers that happen, whether it's page one or page three or five, because you have those two-page spreads when you're reading comic, at least like a traditional comic, Mm -hmm. versus, like, what I'm doing right now, uh, with the Red Hook is I'm creating this, like, I deliver a single JPEG that might be the equivalent of 15 to 20 panels that, you know, cut up a different way equals four to five to sometimes seven pages of content in a comic book. So uh, it, it just the, it's just the delivery system, I guess, but the actual blank page, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing you can go from a splash page where you have a single image that can equal a close up or a vista mm-hmm. um, you can uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you or I said this in different conversation but I'm trying to figure out how to uh, uh, plant a secret in the middle of a page uh-huh. so even though you can glance at something it doesn't have context till you get to it so um, I don't know the, 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 the more I grow as an artist the less I want to draw
2: sure Creating a comic that has a home online first, you know, one of the things I, I imagine you have to anticipate is that it's going to be read by being scrolled across the screen rather than the page turning. Yep. So do you feel you're approaching a point, with, at least with the Red Hook in particular,
1: where the the page as a unit isn't even a thing? Do well, you- the thing is the page now is this, this, the, the rectangle of your phone. So the good news is there's a bunch of those reveals as you scroll with your thumb and it's up to you to like you know see something as it happens or mm-hmm. go past it real quick and come back depending on how you're scrolling and whatnot and if it's even interesting to you hopefully it is but yeah I mean I also did a comic or look at my graphic novel over here fear my dear each panel is the same square because I thought about that in 2006 and 2007 that you know when I was putting it up online you had to click through each square and so it set this tone this pace mm-hmm. When I published it in print, I put four squares per page and had to think about the pacing of that. You know, it's all about the delivery system, you know, at the end of the day.
2: Question number five, shifting gears. What's a change you'd like to
1: see across the comics industry? Well, I mean, I know everyone's talking about diversity. Of course we want more diverse comics, different kinds of comics. Uh, I think for a long time, and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a culprit of this as well, is that comics are often synonymous with superhero comics. And comics, and I've also worked with Harvey Pekar, and he famously said comics can be about anything. And that's true too, you know? So, um, you know, I just think the more the merrier, you know? And I think that is happening. So if, if I have a wish for more diverse comics, that is happening. Maybe what I really wish is more comics readers. Uh-huh. You know, uh, or I wish that if you dug that Captain America: Civil War movie, or that Batman versus Superman, or whatever, you know, gets you into these characters, that that would transition to, oh, let me go read more of these characters. You know, and I do think that the problem with that is it's sometimes, like I was mentioning about X Men, it's hard to dive into continuity and figure out what the hell's going oh, yeah. on half the time. And you know, if you were to ask me. To be the editor-in-chief of Marvel, let's say. Uh, frankly, I might cut the books down to about, you know, half of what they're producing. And I would have one Spider-Man comic. Phanta- I would have bring back the Fantastic Four for crap's sake. Um, and I actually have a great Fantastic Four story to tell. Uh, and, you know, i bring back, you know, all the teams, all the heroes. They all have their own single comics. And... Uh, And then you have all these collections of the backstories, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe also have like certain artists uh, who are known for their unique voice. And I mean artists and writers to produce a story and hire them to do their take, because that's also interesting. Kind of like what, you know, that's what Frank Miller did with Dark Knight or Paul Pope or, you know, Becky Cloonan or... You know, Warren Ellis. I mean, we have so many great voices. Like, why does it necessarily... Do do the characters need to be shackled to continuity? Let them flex their their wares and tell these, you know, funky stories. And whether or not they're in continuity, who cares? You know, like... And they have done that. You know, there's these fake stories from the real comics. Um, But, yeah, I might might reduce the output of that, you know, and and make the companies more manageable. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile... Create more characters, uh, more creator owned characters. Uh, Follow up
2: question about that. How much in your time working on comics does the role of the editor change? You know, I, I hear, and this is mostly speculation from people on the outside of the industry looking in, that, you know, at Marvel and DC, for instance, the editor has a larger voice than ever, and the writers and artists who, you know, fit in the best there are people who can write. And uh, like, like credit where it's due, often innovate and still create surprising stories, but like right within the confines of an editorial vision that's maybe more specific
1: than it's ever been. I think um, I, I don't have as much experience working uh, on regular comics. I've done a four-issue mini-series here, five issue thing mm-hmm. there, uh, but nothing where I've had like a six-year run on something. Sure, but you know, I, I do get uh, you know, I do get the feeling that at least for the bigger companies and the franchise companies that have movies and continuity to deal with and fans to appease and and woo new readers, that maybe editors have kind of become showrunners in a way. Sure. You know, um, I'm, uh, I come from the old school of like, I think I prefer to, uh, what was it? Was it Woody Allen or Alfred Hitchcock or somebody said that 90% of great directing is great casting. So like if you cast well, meaning hire a really cool writer or writer artist, you kind of step out of their way. You know, you keep, you know, you play traffic cop maybe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you make sure that the, that the story makes sense and it's compelling and interesting and sellable uh, and keeps people coming back for more. But, you know, we have so, we have so much great talent. Why not utilize that talent versus trying to create technicians out of talent? You know, for editorial ideas. Now, it's not to say that editors don't have great ideas because they also have their finger on the pulse sometimes, or they're they're watching the news. Mm-hmm. And you know, I understand that you know certain kinds of comics are responding to what's happening today. Or, you know, yesterday or tomorrow or trying to figure out what's happening tomorrow. And that's cool. I get that. And that that's the kind of dialogue that an editor should have with the creative. But I'd rather just, again, like, hire someone because they're really good at what they do. And they're going to try to figure that stuff out and, and let the conversation happen. I mean, I hear – I mean, you know, I worked for Walter Simonson, uh, Howard Chaykin, and Bill Sienkiewicz in 1985 as an assistant, okay? But uh, and I got the the, uh, the honor to meet many times Louise Simonson. Mm-hmm. But I hear such great things about how how great an editor she was on X Men and a bunch of the books. Uh, and she's also a great writer herself. So, but she was able to not only step back and let you wave your freak flag, but also set goalposts and like you know and figure stuff out. You know and I don't know I, I and then you hear great things about Archie Goodwin. And I've worked with great editors too. You know. Uh, Jonathan Bank and Joan Hilty uh, Paul Kaminsky uh, many editors and it's very rare that I've worked with an editor where we didn't jive but I think sometimes that was because I felt I was being asked to be more of a technician Uh than like, hey Dean do your thing, let's have fun well, this, uh, this is a very different creative
2: circumstance, I imagine. But what was working with Harvey P. like in that respect? Uh, how much creative latitude did you have in the composition of a page or an issue?
1: Well, except for the few stories that he asked me to draw... And then there was later on when he was writing, you know, when we did The Quitter and then he was writing American Splendor and he would just write a bunch of stories and I had a chance to pick and choose stories. Mm-hmm. I was obviously responding to the ones that tickled me more than others. But within, within the story, I, you know, he was basically talking, he was, he was writing a, a talking head, mm-hmm. you know, with a stick figure. And he wasn't really thinking so much about the format of the comic, you know? So that was my job. And my job was to not only, like, try to understand the story and serve it, but also exploit its virtues and find its narrative work, sure. you know? So as a writer myself, I feel like that's the way I was able to I- I interject myself, you know? So, uh, and he let me have that latitude. And sometimes we gripe and have a little scuffle. Uh-huh. And that's, that's creative tension right there, you know? All right, question number eight. What's the worst
2: decision you've made as a cartoonist?
1: Becoming a a cartoonist? (laughs) I mean, in a way, it's a curse because I can't do anything else. I'm otherwise unemployable. Although, hopefully I can take my storytelling powers and transition them to other mediums as well because I do love television and film and, you know, song and poetry and essays and, you know and everything else. So hopefully I'm just a good storyteller or getting there. But I do love comics. In fact, I was just saying to someone recently, like, don't don't draw a screenplay. Don't draw something that's supposed to be something else. Mm-hmm. Make it a comic. Uh, Michel Fife, who does Copra. Oh, yeah. That's a comic book. It's nothing else. You know, it's supposed to be that. Uh, and I love when I see that. I also love, I don't know, like, when people are complaining about Milo Minara's Spider-Woman uh, drawing being like uh, anatomically incorrect, then take a fucking picture. You know what I'm saying? Like, the guy draws the way he draws. You know, that's it. You cannot like the drawing. You can like whatever the context is, but like, don't say something's because like I'm not trying to draw anatomically correct stuff. I'm not. It's not a lesson in, in, in anatomy. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's 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 a, a celebration of expression and fantasy. You know, so. That's what's great about comics, and and the 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 more you do it as an artist auteur, it becomes a signature like calligraphy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah.
2: And this is a similar question. I think I skipped over. What's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning?
1: Oh God, I can't quit comics as <laughs> much, and not quit comics because I'm you know it's because it is frustrating because I do spend an inordinate amount of my life doing it. Uh, and I'd like to do other things. But that's my bad. That's my poor, uh, you know, project managing, as it were. Um, I could figure it out. I could I could figure out how to do other things as well. But, um, you know, when something's not working out, let it go. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit there and get myself punched in the face or, or you know, fight and battle because of an idea that's working or not working or because I didn't like working with someone. You know, that's just a situation. You know, I've had some tough times. It's not not easy, but I can't imagine doing anything else right now.
2: Question 9 of 10. What work from another
1: medium has influenced you the most? Well, until three weeks ago, I would have said, you know, film and television, and that's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, it's it's a different medium because it employs moving pictures and sound and different, you know, ways of creating a story. Uh, and and I do love, like, I love horror films, spaghetti westerns, crime noir, and all that. But I didn't realize how much of an impact Prince had on me until he passed away, and not because. His music won't live forever, and not because he has another hundred albums coming out or whatever's going to happen. And But I, it was a sensibility. It was everything about the man and what he represented to a teenage boy growing up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan who liked comic books and got made fun for it in high school. Mm-hmm. Again, I, don't, I would never classify myself as a nerd, you know, but the way I see nerds are people who are very passionate about the stuff that they like or love. And I definitely had that in spades growing up with my few friends that, you know, after high school, instead of, you know, playing sports or trying to get girls, we would go and make comic books, you know, and, and tell these stories. And, yes, girls came into play later uh, and other things, but, yeah, I... Um
2: Do you remember the first time you encountered the music of Prince? I should say for the listener, we are recording this in Minneapolis, Minnesota, about three weeks after the passing of Prince Rogers Nelson.
1: Yeah, and when I picked this show to come to this show last year, it was to come to Minneapolis for the first time to check out First Avenue where he played. And I was joking that I was going to sneak into Paisley Park and, like, wrestle Prince to the ground, tell him how much I loved him, and and to Mm -hmm. thank him for... And is before he passed away, and I knew that, you know? And Friday night, when I flew in Friday morning to get here to the show, I did the show, and uh, a couple of friends drove me to Paisley Park Mm -hmm. uh, a little before midnight, so I could pay my respects. And it's haunting, it's tragic, it's beautiful, it's so sad, I still can't believe it. And I, again, you know, so when, when Harvey Picard passed away, someone asked me, like, how does that make you feel? And, of course, it makes you feel sad that, you know, someone you love and work with, you know, died. Uh, but I, I was able to say, you know, like, if you want to know about Harvey Picard, it's all out there. He, he wrote every mundane thing down that he ever did. Uh, and the only thing he can't write is his death or his funeral. And that's our job. And, you know, same with Prince. He has so much stuff out there. Like, you know... Uh, you, you can love it and hate it you can like you know, make a list of your favorites, whatever and you know he has a song for everything but I, I, I still am mourning the passing of the physical being. Uh, I, I, I still can't believe he's gone mm-hmm. and I think he made more of an impact on my life than I would than I ever knew or will ever know.
2: Final question. You've been assigned to write and illustrate Garfield, but you can change one aspect of the strip. What do you change? I would change nothing,
1: because if I'm correct, it makes a lot of money. (laughs) I think you're right. (laughs) All right, we'll end on that. Thank you very much, Dean. Hey, thank you very much.